I was uh, 23 years old, and Ellen and I had gone to Africa for the summer. We were kind of between um, uh, the end of a, a college year and the begin in, in the spring and the beginning of the next semester in the fall, and we were thinking at that time about spending the rest of our lives in southern Africa, and so that we spent at least a summer there. And one of the uh, the Sundays that I will not ever forget, as long as I live, even though now it's you know close to 32 years ago. Uh, we had gone out to a village in Zimbabwe, a very primitive village, uh, people still living with well water, uh, still living the way that they had for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as we pulled up in our Volkswagen Combi uh, and it got, got out, the villagers from the church had come out to meet us knowing that we were coming. And uh, as we were heading to the hut that was turned into the, uh, the church building, there was a lot of screaming and shouting, and I turned over to my left, and I saw an old, old woman who uh, was dressed, you know, very shabbily, even for, the, for village life, and, and she was sort of walking like a chicken and clucking like a chicken, and, chicken, and she was shouting things at us, and, I, you know, I didn't speak uh, the Chichewa the language or the, uh, the, the, the other lang- uh, tribal languages of, of Zimbabwe, and, and so I didn't have a clue as to what she was saying. And so I spoke to one of the, the Africans, uh, the villagers, and I, I asked, what, what in the world is going on over there? Is she, uh, she okay? And he said, uh, well, she's a witch doctor, and she is not happy you're here. She's cursing you. I'm 23 years old, and I don't know anything about anything. I just kind of blow it off. You know, we go in, we do church. Speed forward a couple of years. I'm in La Jolla, California. And we have a paraplegic kiddo in the youth group, and this is the church that is going to send us to the mission field. Uh, at that time, we were going back to Zimbabwe before God changed our plans, and we ended up in Brazil. But it was, in, was within the first couple of months that, that we were in La Jolla, California, just outside of, of San Diego at a beach with a bunch of kids in the youth group. There was a paraplegic kid um, in the youth group who really wanted to go to the beach with us and to participate with the kids. And so I, I was really able to talk his mom into letting us go with him. I said, I'll never take my eyes off of him. Uh, and we, you know, I took him into the water and we didn't get into very deep water, but I'm holding this kid. And uh, he's just, he's having the time of his life. I mean, it's just very rare to a, a kid that's just completely paralyzed really get to go out into the water and feel those waves. And we're just having a great time. The kids were wonderful with him and so embracing and so accepting, just loving of this kid. And while we're out there in the water, he says, oh, Mr. Absher, I, I, I need to go to the men's room. Which meant that I had to take him out of the water and carry him because he's paraplegic. I have to take care of everything. And we go into this public bathroom in La Jolla and it is absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen in my life I mean I dare not even put this kid on the ground to kind of clean up things I mean it is and I'm trying to think what in the world did I uh, am am I going to do and he's begging me to hurry and about that time there comes in this guy that's about my height uh, you know he just looks like a beach dude and he comes in and he says hey man let me give you a hand and he goes into one of the stalls. He just cleans it up and gets it together. And, and I go into the stall with, with uh, this kid, Ricky, and uh, help him out. And as we're coming out, I can tell that this guy is standing right there, and he's waiting for us. He's not doing anything. He's just standing there. So I come out of the stall, and he walks right up to me, and he says, God bless you. And he turned around, and I'm as close to him as this pulpit, carrying Ricky, and we go out into the door and into the sunlight, and he disappears. I walk completely around that little, little tiny building that's about the size of this stage, 
and it's an empty parking lot, and it's empty and flat, and I can see for hundreds of yards around me, and I can see our youth group, and there is no one else around. And I thought, angels unaware. Some years later, we're in Brazil. And now we're in a country where uh, there is, uh, there, there's, you know, the black magics of Condomble and, and Macumba, uh, you know, the, British, the, the Brazilian versions of voodoo that are very, very prevalent. And, you know, Ellen and I can be walking down the street and we'll see an empty bottle of some kind of uh, liquor and, and candles that have been burned to the ground and, and chicken feathers. And we know that something, some, something happened right there that was in the voodoo arts. And we had, uh, there was a, uh, a store just right below our apartment uh, there on the, the avenue, the commercial strip there right below our apartment. And the, all they sold were were these dolls and statues of of all of the the, the different voodoo spirits and uh, the the different kinds of paraphernalia that went with those religions and where years earlier I would have maybe gone in just from a uh, from a sociological curiosity wanted to go in and see after all the things I had experienced up to that point I would not take a step into that place would not walk into it. We had members of our church who would come to us from time to time, and they were a little bit concerned because somebody in their neighborhood had cast a spell on them. We had this one, uh, he was a really simple young man, um, had run away from home when he was about 11 years old and from the Northeast, and had traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, and had ended up in our city and a member of our church. Very, very simple guy, and he just came to us one evening, uh, or one late one afternoon, he was in tears and he was just crying and crying because he had been cursed by somebody with Condomble Macumba and he thought that he would never ever marry because he had been cursed. And where years earlier I, I would have just blown it off, what my colleagues and I say to him is, you know, we don't really know all there is with that religion, but I want you to know that the God that is inside of you is stronger than anything you're going to face and comforted him that way. You know, one of the, 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 the interesting teachings of the New Testament is that our real fight is not with flesh and blood, with, with other human beings like ourselves. It's with this unseen world. And that's one of the reasons why Paul will say in Ephesians 6 that we've got to put on the spiritual armors because our fight is not with flesh and blood, but with, you know, it's this spiritual battle. It's this, this, this unseen world that we have to do business with. And interestingly enough, that's a lot of the teaching that we find in the Gospels as it pertains to Christ. There was this, this, uh, this demonic cosmology in the ancient world, and it wasn't just in Israel. It was all over the world where demons were thought to be everywhere. That if, if there was something missing in your house or there was something out of place or, you know, a, something happened that was kind of out of, out of place and it was, it was sort of a weird occurrence, that that was some kind of a mischievous demon that was inside of your house doing all of that. And, and there was just this cosmology that there were demons everywhere. And in the text that Jim just read for us, obviously, we, you know, we have this encounter with Legion. But the text right before, beginning in verse 22, we also have this story dealing with Jesus who is up in the area around Capernaum in the north kind of central area of the Sea of Galilee, and he is going to travel to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are really kind of freaked out by that. 
The first reason is because they believed, and the rabbis taught this, you can see these teachings in Talmud, the rabbis taught that the demons were very, very real and that the demons were in places where there were large quantities of water. Therefore, all of the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee made their living by fishing along the shoreline. They never went out into the middle of it. And one of the reasons that they never went out into the middle of it was because of the storms that would come. And there was in their thinking that there was something evil in the center, in the deep part of the Sea of Galilee. And that was the reason why there were all of these storms and this, this, this treacherous weather that would, would submerge these boats and kill everybody aboard. And so when Jesus says, you know, we're going to take a trip and we're going to go maybe about four hours across the Sea of Galilee to the other side... They're a little bit concerned about that, and not only do they get out into the middle of that and they're nervous, but their worst fears are confirmed. There is this gigantic storm, and they're worried that they're going to perish, and they talk to Jesus who's in the back of the boat, and you know the story, peace be still, and it's calm, and they get to the other side. And they're kind of concerned about the other side as well because that's the Decapolis. On the west side of the Sea of Galilee, you had the, you know, our side, you had the kosher side, you had the clean side, you had the Jewish side, you had the side that God was on. On the other side, it was the Decapolis, the ten big cities of the Roman Empire, the, the non-Jewish, you know, peoples. And on that side, it was non-kosher, it was unclean, it was ungodly, and that's where demons are. And so not only do they get out of this boat and they're kissing the ground because they're safe, they got to the other side, and they, they were able by Jesus' strength and power and authority and sovereignty over the storm, get to the other side safely, but as soon as they get out of the boat, who are they met by? A guy with a demon. And the text says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And there's, there's sort of this description of this guy. For a long time, he had not worn clothes, so, you know, he's, 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 he's naked. He's not lived in a house, so there's been nobody to kind of shelter him and to take care of him, but, but he had lived in the tombs. And so here's, here's and we're going to read a little bit later in the text that, you know, the people in town, they, they were really frightened of this guy. I mean, he's sort of the Frankenstein of the community, you know, the countryside, and so they're trying to get the monster. And here's this guy with his hair going everywhere and the long beard, and he's living in the tomb. He's living in, in, in scary places, and he doesn't have any clothes, and he's howling at night and shrieking at night. And they would try to get him, and they would bind him with chains. And what would he do? He'd break the chains. So here comes Jesus. They hit the beach with the disciples, and here comes this, this unclothed man with hair everywhere with the shackles still hanging and the chains hanging from his wrist who is completely naked, he is unkempt, he is disheveled, and he comes out to them. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. I mean, as soon as he sees Jesus, he falls down in front of him and begs, Don't torture me. Trivia question. Anybody know the, the duration of the shortest war in the history of recorded history of the world. 45 minutes. Zanzibar versus the United Kingdom. 
In Zanzibar, there was this, uh, this sultan that was very, very popular with the British Empire. Uh, he had ruled, and when he died in 1896, he had a nephew that had had his eye on the crown all of this time and wanted to rule Zanzibar. So as soon as the sultan dies, he sort of does this coup d'etat and takes over, and the British Empire goes, you know what, I don't think so. There's somebody else we have in mind. They give him an ultimatum. They tell this fellow, you have X number of hours to get out of the palace, or we will declare war on you. He doesn't do it. The ultimatum, the time limit passes. There are five British warships out on the African coast. They begin to bombard uh, this capital city, and within 45 minutes... This guy has fled the palace, gone to the German consulate, and is asking for asylum. Forty-five minutes. This battle that took place, this war that took place, ended immediately. This guy falls down in front of Jesus and recognizes him. One of the funny things about the gospel, especially like in the gospel of Mark, is that you have all of these Jewish people who are steeped in all of the Jewish scripture, and they do not recognize Jesus, but everybody else does. The Gentiles do, the demons do, but his own people don't. And here's another example. He, he, he says, don't torture me, for Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Now, you know, depending on what time and period in the history of the Roman Empire you're talking about, you know, a legion is anything from 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And whether or not legion is a, a, an exact number of demons inside of this guy, the, the idea is, is that this guy is so eaten up with, with demons and is so beyond the, 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 uh, the, 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 the limited strength of men for help that there's nobody that's going to be able to save him. There's, there's no one that is going to be able to bring this cat into his right mind and to help him recover his life, the life that God had blessed him with and the life that God intended him to live. He said, Legion, because many demons had gone into him and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. You know, the funny thing about demons, they're like salesmen. They, they want to get you talking. You know, they want to get you talking because they know. You know, you go to, you know, and this is right. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it's just the way that I, I do it. it. You know, the few times that I go to the mall during the year, there's always those kiosks out there in the, in the middle. And when you're walking by, you know, Ellen, don't look at them. You know, you're drive, walking by and they always try, hey, sir, you know, and hey, ma'am, you know, and they're always trying to get you to stop and to look at them and to get you into conversation because they know that if they get you into a conversation, they're going to want. They're going to sell you something. And that's what the demons do. That's what the demons do. I mean, think about your own temptation life, right? It starts off with, you know, you're out of town and your wife has not been all that close to you recently. You're not all that, you know, you're not really, you know, all that tight in marriage right now. And, you know, she's not answering the phone. And you got all of this time and there's this availability of, Who's going to know? Or it's, yeah, you have a struggle with alcohol, but, I mean, one drink, really. Who's that? And that dark side just tries to get you talking, right? 
Well, they tried to do the same thing with Jesus. He said, we're legion. Don't torture us. But they're trying to get Jesus talking. Please, don't send us into the abyss. And so they think that they've, they've won because they get Jesus to put them into the 2,000 swine that are, are there on, on the countryside, there on, on the side of the cliff. And Jesus puts the demon's legion into the pigs. The pigs become startled, and they go running into the water and are destroyed. Now, the really sad thing is that when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found Frankenstein's monster in his right mind and clothed. And just like a lot of other folk in the pages of the Bible, there's this humongous, gigantic, extraordinary, fantastic miracle that's taken place and they go what in the world happened to the pigs those who had seen it told the people how the demon possessed man had been what cured then all the people of the region of the garrisons asked jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear he had taken care of their, their, their biggest threat to a normal life. Jesus had, had taken care of the thing they were fearful of and the thing that they probably used to tell their kids to get them to comply to, you know, and be obedient, that this guy is going to get you if you don't obey. I mean, he, they, he, Jesus had cured this individual. He's in his right mind, and he's clothed, and he's sitting there with Jesus and the disciples, and they say, listen, thank you, but you got to go. you got to go because they did not know how to handle that power. And so Jesus gets into the boat, and the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. That's, that's, every time I, I read that part of the story, I, I, I get a little choked up, because here's, here's a fellow that is suffering in life in ways that none of us in this room have really ever dealt with. I mean, just tortured, 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 tortured. And, and, and maybe people had tried to help him, but they had stopped trying to help him. They were just trying to contain him. They were just trying to control him and the collateral damage. And Jesus has come, and he is put together again. And he begs Jesus, let me go with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. That was the power of his conversion. But Jesus says, no, you need to return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. I think uh, there, there's, there's so much that you pull out of these stories about the sovereignty of, of the Christ. And when you see the Christ, you actually see what it is that God is wanting to do, in, in, not just in creation and in the world, but in the human project. But one of the things that always strikes me every time I read this passage is that we always short sell the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. What this story says is that the power of God is even for people we think are beyond the gospel. That from our standpoint, there's no way. 
from, from our vantage point, from our viewpoint, from our way, our, our, in our manner of thinking, in our way of thinking, that this person is beyond the power of God to change. And this story says, no. We've shortchanged the power of the gospel. And then the second thing is we often forget, and this is kind of some, some terminology we've been using over the last couple of weeks, that the business of God is, is taking someone who's a nobody. And if there was anybody on the pages of Scripture, just right up there with the Samaritan woman at the well, that's a nobody on the pages of the Gospel, it's this one. No one wants to live near Him. No one wants Him free. No one wants to take care of Him. They want to chain him. They want to bind him. They want to control him. They want to seal him off and secure him off. They, they, you know, they're looking at their... Nobody, this guy, in their eyes, is a nobody. The, the village would be better off if he's gone and chained or something. But that's not the way that God sees him. And the interesting thing to me is that there's really no reason for Jesus to go to the Decapolis except to save this guy. He leaves his side, the kosher side, the clean side, the side that recognizes God, the side of his people. And he travels four hours, probably sailboat from Capernaum to this place called Kersey. Travels four hours, and he's probably not there very long before he gets back in the boat and returns. But he goes for this guy. He goes and he turns this nobody into a somebody who then takes his own experience of the power of God in his own life and he starts telling the gospel, starts talking about the mercy that God has had in his life, how Jesus has come near him. He tells the Gospels to the Gentiles long before the time of Paul or Peter. And there's probably a little bit of foreshadowing of, of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In all of the Gospels, there's this Great Commission. It's found in Luke, it's found in John, it's found in Mark, it's found in Matthew, where we are to leave the places of comfort and to go to the people that we do not know necessarily very well or at all and to go to all of those parts of the world to make disciples, that is, to make people who recognize the sovereignty of God and put their trust and their faith and they commit the wholeness of their life to that God in places all over the world. I, I think it's, it's an incredible story. I love the way that Jim read it. It tells us something about the heart of God and it tells us something about the power of the gospel and the power of, of, of Jesus coming into somebody's life and, 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 the desire, and the desire of the Messiah himself not only to save his own people but to save all of these other people outside of Israel as well. Dave's going to lead us in a song right now and maybe there's a way that we can minister to you tonight helping you to understand, helping you maybe even to open the door to the power of God coming into your life to change you. 
in such a way that the first thing you want to do is to talk about it to the people that you live around. And we can do that tonight. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. Maybe we can pray for you. Maybe we can talk to you about how the gospel can come into your life and change everything and connect you to God where he becomes your father and you become his son or daughter for all of eternity. Whatever those needs might be, the shepherds want to greet you and meet you down here at the front as we stand and praise God together. For the light of your love.